Welcome to the People in the Red Vest, a podcast of the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies, the IFRC. In each episode, we feature inspiring, surprising, and thought-provoking conversations with people who dedicate their lives to helping others. In this episode, breaking the mold on the way we pay for recovering and rebuilding after crisis. I'm your host, Alexandra Sasha Gorishek, and today I'm speaking with IFRC Undersecretary General Nena Stojilkovic about her lifelong passion for using innovative financing and partnerships to help people and communities get back on their feet. I also ask her what it's been like to be a woman and a global leader in the still male-dominated world of finance and development. For me, it's purpose. Uh, I'm here by choice. And uh, their choice is to have a purpose on this planet, uh, to feel like whatever I do uh, has an impact on someone somewhere out there. It has been my driving force for my whole life, but I've never seen it so prominently um, than now here in, in Red Cross and Red Crescent. My guest today is Nena Stojilkovic, the Undersecretary General for Global Relations, Humanitarian Diplomacy, and Digitalization at IFRC. Welcome, Nena. Thank you. Your title sounds quite complex. It's a mouthful. Could you tell us in your words, what does your role entail? Uh, I can say that the title is accurate. It does cover three key areas of my uh, work and my portfolio. But the way how I would uh, simplify it and interpret it is, is, is basically about external uh, relationships, including partnerships, including advocacy, uh, and uh, has elements of digitalization, of course, which is not so much external, but given what is happening in the world uh, with digital transformation, it is also linked to some of the other parts of my portfolio. So your responsibilities are in many ways at the intersection of all the hottest trends, one could say, the digitalization, global relations in an increasingly interconnected world, innovation. So the world is changing really, really fast, um, presenting lots of challenges uh, to us as humanitarian, uh, as a humanitarian organization. What do you think are the biggest challenges but also opportunities that we face in terms of getting the message of humanity out in this environment. How do we position IFRC as a reliable, proactive, and influential global humanitarian organization? IFRC is uh, one of the oldest uh, and the largest humanitarian networks in the world. It's been out there for more than 100 years. And um, I would want to say, unfortunately, uh, we're not going to go out of business. Uh, and you all see how, how many crises are compounding, uh, what is happening in fragile and conflict states, how they come out of fragility, come back to fragility. Uh, we see what's going on with climate um, crisis and how that impacts uh, some of the vulnerable communities, uh, almost forgotten. And when you add all of that, uh, there is a strong role for organizations uh, like IFRC and IFRC Network. 
to position ourselves. I think we just need to speak about our unique uh, nature, our unique operating model. There is no organization like this one. Uh, why do I say that? Very few organizations have presence in all countries in the world, more or less. Um, and even when they do, they are not out there in the forgotten communities, last mile communities, local communities, where most of these humanitarian issues are the, the most challenging in a way. And we are. And we, as IFRC, as a small secretariat to that vast network of locally based uh, volunteers who live in those communities before, during and after crisis, we have such a unique operating model um, and that positions us very well to be the first respondents to, to, to any crisis, but also to build resilience of those communities. And the second thing that also works for us is this hundred years of history of saving people's lives, of building resilience in millions of communities around the world, and such a strong brand name that in combination with this unique uh, operating model, I believe notwithstanding the challenges out there in the world position us very well uh, to be at the forefront of addressing them. So looking at the big picture, what do you think are the biggest humanitarian challenges we face? And how do we take them on? To me, the biggest challenge uh, for the humanitarian sector, and uh, IFRC included, is the sheer scale at which we need to operate. Uh, we, uh, as IFRC, we have 16 million volunteers in more than 190 countries, but that's not enough. Uh, when you look at the number of communities, with the number of issues um, in those communities from climate to, to other, other issues, uh, we need more. We, we need more volunteers. We need also more funding uh, for the work that, that needs to be done. So in my mind, that's the sheer challenge. That's the, that's the challenge for all of us, the, the sheer size of what has to be done, unfortunately, still. Um, and, and, and at this time, right, huge need for humanitarian assistance. And then, um, of course, that's coupled with very small funding in the overall global context that's available for the humanitarian sector. And when I look at the opportunities, um, the ultimate solution would be that locally present actors and organizations are strong enough and sustainable enough to address those challenges in their countries, in their communities. But we haven't invested enough in many of them, and they still have a long way to go to reach that um, ability to be able to respond to any crisis in their country uh, at the speed that's needed, with capacity that is needed. You, you just painted a picture for us how big that job actually is. And a big part of your job is to figure out how do we pay for what we do. IFRC, together with its network of um, national societies of the Red Cross and Red Crescent, how do we go about raising funds? Can you tell us about that? It is a difficult question, Sasha, and I spent a lot of time in my own portfolio on uh, partnership development, uh, innovative partnerships, thinking about how we can uh, grow the, the funding for the humanitarian uh, needs. 
including the ones, obviously, of our national societies. Uh, my role is to make sure that the Secretariat is fully funded so that we can support our, our members. But most of my role is also to fundraise uh, for specific programs and initiatives that our member national societies will deliver. The ultimate solution to the funding problem is to uh, make sure that every single of our national societies is financially sustainable. And the only way they could be that is uh, that domestic mobilization within their countries where they are playing auxiliary role to, to their governments is um, allowing them to be financially sustainable. Many of them have also assets that are not deployed in the most productive way against which they could possibly even borrow and use some other financial instruments, not just grants. And my dream would be to make every single of our national societies financially sustainable. That's not fundraising for them. That is supporting them to fundraise by themselves in their domestic markets. And when I look at the global uh, fundraising issues, um, there are limits to grants. Uh, humanitarian sector is funded 100% uh, by grants. I think we have to innovate, and uh, I may be uh, able to share some of the examples where we can connect humanitarian financing and development financing. That's one of the challenge for all of us. And the second one is humanitarian and more meaningful private sector engagement because the funds are really in the private sector. You've already alluded to this, uh, and the world of finance itself has been, has changed dramatically and continues to do so. Um, we're seeing crypto, blockchains, honestly, I don't even know what all that means. So how does that help us as a humanitarian organization in raising funds? How can we tap to these innovative ways of investing money? When I look at the digital uh, developments, I mean, that's an obvious one. Uh, in the past, we um, had to receive checks, physical checks for, for the donations and gifts that um, we, were, we were receiving. Uh, through digital way, ways, we can certainly grow the, the, the fund, fundraising for certain purposes. And we're trying to connect many of our national societies to a digital fundraising platform that will allow them to achieve that uh, more of that financial sustainability that I was talking about. So one of the innovations could be to deploy more digital ways for pure uh, grant fundraising. Uh, but I think the bigger innovation is what I already alluded to, is to see how we can tap into deeper pockets. And deeper pockets are in development budgets of various government uh, donors uh, with the development banks and uh, certainly in the private sector. And maybe just to mention some numbers, the overall uh, overseas development assistance per year is 150 million. Um, the um, budget of some of the multilateral development banks is hundreds of billions of dollars, euros, and the private sector sits on 300 trillions of assets and unmanaged assets. So it's very clear if we are serious, um, about financial sustainability, both of our national societies and the humanitarian sector as a whole, we need to tap into development, finance and private sector. Speaking of funding mechanisms, a few days, in a few days from now, IFRC 
is hosting the annual Disaster Relief Emergency Fund, or DREF as we know it, pledging conference. Can you explain to our listener what is DREF and why does it matter? Thank you, Sasha. DREF is my favorite instrument uh, in terms of um, really impacting people's lives and saving people's lives when it's most important. And when it's most important, it is when the crisis happens. DREF uh, has allowed uh, IFRC as a secretariat to 191 uh, national societies to disburse quickly funding whenever the crisis uh, situation happens in that particular country where that national society, Red Cross or Red Crescent, has to respond. Uh, there are very few instruments that allow us to do that. In most cases, um, when those crises happen, some assessments need to be made, typically emergency appeals to be launched, funding to be raised. Uh, DREF allows IFRC to support its, its members immediately. We are now able to disburse funds in a matter of hours after disasters, uh, and that, that's life-saving, uh, most life-saving than any other type of uh, intervention. Uh, I just wanted to also say that this instrument has been out there for 30 years, but what we are trying to do now is to grow it. We want draft to be 100 million uh, Swiss francs per year and to be replenishable at that level. So as you just said, it's 30 years old. Why is it still relevant today? We previously, just before that, we spoke about innovative finance and how the world of finance is changing. So how is DREF still working today? Have you been adapting the approach? What's, what's your, is, is DREF more needed now than ever? To me, it's more needed uh, now because um, uh, we, we see what, what you can do with flexible funds. Uh, we uh, were in a period where donors wanted to earmark their funds and you had to have structured programs around um, climate adaptation, around migration, health. Um, we don't know what kind of crisis can happen in any part of the world. Uh, DREF is a pooled fund. A multi-donor fund it gets replenished every year. We want it at that level of 100 million. Uh, right now, it's uh, below that. It's uh, maybe 60% of the target size. And uh, when you have it, you can respond in moments after that crisis happens. It's not earmarked to a particular type of intervention. That's why I think it's relevant. And we saw it recently when um, we experienced earthquakes in Turkey and Syria how quickly we were able uh, to uh, fund both national societies to provide immediate response. Your team has also developed an innovative insurance product to expand the capacity of DREF through public-private partnerships, which is all you, you also mentioned earlier. What is DREF insurance and why do these public-private partnerships matter? I'm very proud of that innovation, Sasha. I think it's quite unique in the humanitarian sector. As much as I would like to link more uh, humanitarian, mostly grant funding, and private sector funding for the reasons that I talked about, it is extremely difficult because when you work with private sector, typically they would, um, uh, in, a, in a meaningful and sustainable way, typically they would want to, to make some money out of it. So that doesn't go well with uh, necessarily with our um, grant uh, fundraising mechanisms. And DREF insurance is the first example, to the best of my knowledge, where we are able 
to involve private sector, in this case insurance companies, in a more meaningful way, which is sustainable for them. Um, what it does for us is it allows us to um, uh, have access to 20 million of draft funding as part of this 100 million. Um, and we get to 20 million by uh, buying insurance for only 5 million of, of, of grants. So our donors, um, by investing or putting 5 million of grants to buy insurance, can enable releasing insurance payout of, of 20 million, which is four times more. And in my mind, um, we get much more funding. Donors get, in a way, a multiplier of their grants. And insurance companies created practically a completely new sector for them, um, which is not fully commercial, of course, especially in the first uh, venture of this kind. But as they grow this portfolio with us or with other humanitarian organizations, the whole uh, model will be more sustainable. You mentioned earlier draft is not earmarked for any particular types of crisis. But is it particular, particularly important now that we're dealing with more frequent and more extreme climate crises? I think so, because climate crisis um, can be interpreted as a cause for many, many other crises. Um, we have now a major food crisis in Africa, but that crisis happens every few years, right? And uh, of course, climate issues have contributed uh, to that. Uh, climate is related to health. Uh, if we address climate issues, there will be less issues on health. And there's a humanitarian organization who would ideally like to see less of those emergencies. Uh, I believe that we should be focusing on climate resilience uh, and preparedness of communities for climate events, because in that way we will reduce the need for interventions around migrations. People also move because of climate. People get sick before because of climate. And we see in Africa in particular, they get hung hungry because of climate. Before joining the IFRC, you worked at the intersection of finance and climate at the International Finance Corporation. What perspective do you bring to this humanitarian world based on your past experience? And how do you see the links between humanitarian response and development, the kind of work you were doing at IFC? Uh, it's, it's related. Um, and what I, what I saw, I, I really saw an opportunity to position IFRC and our members around our work on climate. Because we were working on in climate adaptation, but we were not calling it that way. Um, we do uh, assist and support climate resilience of communities where our volunteers are based, but we don't call it climate resilience. And when you link it to organizations like the World Bank and IFC, they use that jargon. And uh, the more recognizable jargon that we are now using around some of our climate programs and products will allow us to tap into much larger uh, financing that is out there uh, for climate resilience. At the end of the month, uh, IFRC will be joining other stakeholders at COP28 in Dubai. But if we look back um, to last year's COP27, IFRC launched yet another innovative financing initiative there, connected specifically to climate change. Can you tell us about the Global Climate Resilience Platform. What is it meant to achieve and how? Uh, thank you, Sasha. It, it started from that notion of using the, the right narrative and packaging the needs 
in 100 countries in the world on climate uh, resilience at the local level. Uh, we knew uh, what our national societies needed in some places, but we elevated that to a 100 uh, countries plan for five years. We aggregated it around three areas where we think that Red Cross um, is most suitable uh, to, to intervene. These are the early warnings, early action, nature-based solutions, and social protection for disasters. So we, we leveraged our strengths, we leveraged our presence, we leveraged the need that our national societies um, uh, were telling us about, and we put it together as a platform that created a narrative uh, of uh, the organization that's actually able over the next five years to have a huge impact in 100 countries, in million communities um, around these three areas. And for that, uh, we are fundraising uh, 1 billion Swiss francs. Uh, this is not uh, an unfunded platform at this stage, even though it was recently launched. I'm very pleased to say that uh, with collaboration with USAID, um, Dutch government, several other governments, uh, we are making progress on um, fundraising and uh, programming some of those uh, funds. You've been involved in, in this um, world of economics and finance um, since the Economic Institute in Serbia, I believe, which is where you're from, uh, in 1986. What was it about economics and finance that attracted you? When did you know, first know, that you had a knack for it? I didn't know it. It got developed over time. Uh, what I knew then, back then, is that I liked mathematics. And I was very good at mathematics. And um, I didn't know what I would do with it. Uh, when I graduated uh, from high school, um, I had two choices. I mean, one was to go to, to the mathematics uh, university, which was my, my lab. And another one was to still be a little bit more pragmatic and link it with some other um, areas. And, and then I chose Economic uh, University in Belgrade, but with a, a special field and focus on econometrics. And I also have master's in econometrics. And then one thing led to another with econometrics and econometric modeling. Of course, you get very interested in how the economies of the countries work. And then uh, to make it work, you need financing. So it's absolutely one thing led to another. But um, the, the root of all of that uh, is my deep love for mathematics. Going back to your roots, how did the context of the times in Eastern Europe and the Balkans inform your worldview? and how finance and development could make a positive difference. If we just go back to my past, I mean, at that time it was very simple fin financial models and ways of doing business, a lot of cash uh, in the economy, um, not well-developed stock market. Um, there, were some, there was some rebuilding of the country and there were investment proposals, but pretty close, not, not too many uh, public-private partnerships, not too many foreign um, investors. So it was like completely another world. And then when I got out of the country, and that was during the war um, in the Balkans, 
I realized uh, the whole world of finance and how much more sophisticated and much more complicated um, it is than what I, I was used to. That, of course, posed the challenge uh, because uh, I never worked abroad. It all started at the age of 30-ish, when most people were trying to settle down in my, in my hometown, in, in my home country, um, and, and stabilize their lives. I chose to go out and start learning almost completely from scratch, especially about the world uh, of finance. And I landed in one of the, I would say, most sophisticated development organizations, global one, uh, working across different financial instruments from grants to debt and equity and uh, blended finance. And as I said, again, as usual, one thing led to another. This was the World Bank, right? This was the International Finance Corporation within yeah. the World within, Bank, okay. private sector yeah. arm of the World Bank. Did you have role models growing up? Were your parents in the same field? And my parents were not in the same field. Um, my father was, in a way, a role model. He was a lawyer. Um, he taught me how to study. He um, taught me how to... Um, be, I call it a last mile oriented uh, in whatever little task I took. And he helped me a lot in the early age um, through my education uh, to solidify that kind of curiosity, ability to move from topic to topic and still uh, try to do the last mile effort, you know, to be good at what you do. Uh, and then along the way, many role models, men and women uh, came and I, I, I learned from many of my bosses, from many of my peers, from many of my team members. It's a continuous learning process for me. The successes you've had in the field of finance used to be, and to some extent continue to be, male-dominated. Did you come across many barriers as a woman? And if so, can you talk about that and share with us how you handled those challenges? Difficult question because there's still many rooms uh, where I enter or many stages where I speak, uh, feel a lot more like men uh, dominated. I find it uh, a little bit unfortunate uh, because I, I've supported many women through my career. I also have a daughter and I, I would like the world to start looking a bit different. Um, and I remember the numbers which I was using in IFC a few years ago. If we don't do anything about it, it will take us 170 years to reach uh, the gender parity, um, especially in the, some of the fields like, like the finance one. And um, I personally, now to contrast what I just said, never felt that my gender is a barrier uh, to, to ent enter into anything, right? In some, in some cases, it even helped. But I also, I'm very proud that I've always chose to work in organizations where gender Parity, gender balance, diversity, inclusion were very important. Uh, when I joined IFC, I mean, it, it, it was a dream come through. It was the whole world in one organization because IFC was recruiting from so many different countries. So I still have friends in Asia, in Latin America, in Africa, and we are all very connected. So I never felt in my personal case that um, being a woman was a barrier. So that's the world of finance. In the humanitarian world, women make up a large percentage, but not so much in the leadership positions. Now, from where you sit here as a leader in humanitarian in the humanitarian sphere, 
Do you see more opportunities for women today in the humanitarian world for, to, to grow into leaders? Or how would you describe it? I certainly do. Uh, and we need to support those uh, women. When you think of uh, women in communities that we support, I mean, they often have a leading role, supporting families. Uh, when women save, we know that, that money goes for their children's education and health. I mean, the role of women in society, and especially in the, the humanitarian field, in my mind, uh, is incredible. Uh, then, of course, education is, is very important. And in most countries, um, uh, women have the same access to education, but then something happens at some point um, where they do not want to pursue further um, career challenges. They slow down. They somehow think is, is that as you grow in your career, that things are going to get more difficult, that you will have less focus on family. Something absolutely happens there. And I take a pride of reverting some of the choices from for many women who either worked with me or even reached out from the external world. I think every single of us uh, both women and men have to spot those challenges at a certain time in women's careers and to help them um, revert some of the decisions um, which are normally either to pull out or to slow down or to take a break. Because when you look at the colleges, 50% uh, of students are women. When you look at organizations, whether you're talking about humanitarian organizations or any other organizations, we cannot say so. Well, some people say men can have it all, meaning career and family, but women can't. What's your personal uh, situation? How have you been able to have both? I think that women can have it all, but they cannot have it all at once, at the same time. If you look at life as being a marathon and not a sprint, um, you have to recognize that there will be days and nights uh, where you're not going to see your kids or you have to make multiple back-to-back -back trips. But then there will be days when you will be spending quality time with them. And when you put it in a long-term uh, perspective, I think that balance of having exciting career, uh, meeting interesting people, doing good in the world, and growing uh, happy children who are proud of you, um, supportive spouse or parents, etc. All of that at this age makes sense. But will you have it all in this week or today or this year? Probably not. The roles of women and men in society are certainly changing for the better, I think. Um, do you see that, what does that mean for, for future diversity in terms of gender, in particular in um, leadership positions? Um, I personally think that uh, women will have to be uh, stronger as they, uh, and, and more confident as they go for certain types of opportunities. But also I'm very pleased to see younger generation being different uh, from us and our generation. Um, they're, they're more balanced in my way, uh, they're more clear on what they want and what they don't want. They don't go for things, they go more for experiences. So I, I really have huge hope in the young generation that they will correct uh, that this balance. Uh, and with digitalization, with the ability to do quite a lot of things from our homes, now we know how to do it and we saw that it works. I, I believe that uh, I, I have high hopes really for the new generation. The name of the podcast is People in the Red Vest. 
What has the red vest been to you? Um, a purpose. For me, it's purpose. Uh, I'm here by choice, and uh, that choice is to have a purpose on this planet, uh, to feel like whatever I do uh, has an impact on someone somewhere out there. It has been my driving force for my whole life, but I've never seen it so prominently um, than he, now here in, in Red Cross and Red Crescent. And Red Vest, of course, is uh, one of the most recognizable um, linkages, right, to Red Cross and Red Crescent. And the vast army of volunteers does every day. In closing, with all that's going on in the world, the bad news that we hear all the time, at the end of the day, who or what inspires you, gives you hope, or brings you comfort? Many people, but my inspiration now uh, comes from my children, from that uh, more balanced way uh, in which they look at things and approach things. And I know that generally young generation um, is, is our future. I, I would invest a lot in young people, young generation, give them access to certain rooms, involve them in decision-making. They are my inspiration. Thank you, Nina for your time and for sharing your expertise, experience and insights with our audience and allow us to get to know you a little bit. Thank you, Sasha. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to People in the Red Vest, a podcast of inspiring stories as told by people from the IFRC. This podcast was produced by Malcolm Lucard, Damian Naylor and myself. Promotion and marketing by Maxime Bouchard, Irina Ruano, and Melis Figanmeshe. Graphic design by Valentina Shapiro, and web support from Chris Okwa and Patrick Tai. For more inspiring stories, subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. 